Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Lani. Lani, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much. Lani, uh, let's start by talking about where you are on the vaccine issue. What's, how would you categorise your position? Um, I mean, I would say that I'm now just like plainly pro-vaccination. I think that I was on like a really interesting kind of journey for a long time throughout like pregnancy in the first couple years of my son's life where I kind of like oscillated between being against it and well being on the fence and then being against it and then back on the fence and then kind of re-researching and then I got to the point where I had done enough research I felt to fully debunk all of the hesitancies that I had had and then I kind of got to that point and I was like I don't think anything is holding me back from like vaccinating myself or my child or anybody else at this point well not that I would be administering vaccines to a random person but (laughs) that I would not be against them unless that is like thoroughly medically indicated for somebody else. What was your family background? Were you vaccinated? Did your parents get you vaccinated? Did they have any strong views on vaccination at all? Yeah, so um, I was vaccinated and my parents, I also have two siblings and both of them were vaccinated. Um, Neither of my parents were ever like against vaccines. So actually like at the time that I became pregnant and like up until the point in my life where um, I became like, very close with another family member who is anti-vaccines I didn't even realize that there was like another side of the issue like you know I had been very privileged and that I had like a really good education you know I went to university I'm still in university studying and like for years and years it had never even really crossed my mind that people did question vaccines which is Um, you know, kind of wild and even being my age, like being on the younger end and being on social media, like I had maybe seen a few posts here and there, but like had always just kind of dismissed it as like, you know, maybe I was like, all right, those people are a little little loony, a little misguided, whatever, and hadn't really thought that this was like a whole movement. I genuinely had no idea that there was that many people questioning vaccines. Yeah, social media really amplified the anti-vaxxers voice uh, disproportionately, I would say as well, making them appear larger and more influential than they actually are. But social media tends to do that with just about everybody. It's just that with some groups, it can be particularly damaging to, well, not just to public health, but also to people's personal lives and their their mental state and their emotional state can leave people very confused and racked with the anxiety because they're hearing all these different messages and they're not quite sure how to determine which messages are authoritative and, and legitimate. And sometimes for a lot of people, it's just a case of who seems to be shouting the loudest. And if you're shouting the loudest and you seem the most concerned about this issue and you're really worried about the children or, you know, your your nephews or or whatever, then that can sound very compelling at a superficial level. And for a lot of people, that's, that's all really they need to hear. I would definitely agree with that. I was kind of um, at an interesting point I would say when I began to like question it and actually look into what the anti-vaccination argument was um so I was so my son's two now but I was pregnant in 2018 and during that time um a family member of mine had moved closer to us they had formerly been out of state and they moved closer by And I was like spending a lot of time with her and, you know, she has two kids and we're very, very close um, at that time because we're spending a lot of time together. And I was not only a new mom and a young mom, but also I'm a single mom. So I don't have a partner and I didn't throughout all of my pregnancy. So I had um, kind of a really difficult time navigating 
early motherhood and making those decisions. And I would say that there's a lot of pressure on single moms as well, because you have to sort of come to all of these really major decisions about parenting, starting with, you know, things that you do in your pregnancy to how you give birth to whether you breastfeed, formula feed, um, how you raise your children, like all of these different decisions. And people have such heavy opinions on them. And I think that this was a person that I, you know, was really close with, am still really close with, honestly. Um, And so, you know, I gave a lot of credence to their opinion, especially because I saw, I was like, okay, well, I have this person I know and love, their children are thriving, they're doing great, you know, and I'm going to be honest about that, they're very healthy, well-rounded kids. So, you know, I have this like anecdotal example in front of me and this person being like, hey, And also the way that she approached it wasn't like beating me over the head with it. It was very much like, I'm really concerned about this issue. And I don't know if you've looked into it. And my original response was just kind of, what is there to look into? You know, which is, I think, what most people's responses is. I was sort of like, you know, I was like, well, I've been living my life under the impression that, you know, very qualified people have already looked into this for me so that I don't have to. And, you know, obviously on the more anecdotal end, I was vaccinated. Pretty much everybody that I know to my knowledge in my life has been vaccinated. I had never met a person who had a vaccine injury before, like, or who claimed to have a vaccine injury. So it was really just that. And then she was kind of like, oh, well, there's these few concerns I have. And like, let me add you to this group I'm in. So you can see the side and then that's where the whole thing is. I'm sure you've heard this narrative before kind of blew up in my face, but. Yeah, that's a a very common way to be introduced to the anti-vax community. And as you pointed out, it typically comes at a point when you're most vulnerable to suggestion on any point related to your child's health. I remember um, when we were expecting our, our first child, uh, I emailed my, my mother and I said, um, I'm about to become a father and I'm frankly terrified. I, I have never done this before. Theoretically, I know what you're supposed to do, but now I'm the one who's supposed to do it. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, what if I get it wrong? And, and what, what happens now? And what do I do here and on this situation? And what if I'm not a good enough father? And all, all these things go through your head just when you're about to become a parent. And then the baby arrives and, and after you've got over the, the initial glow and the cooing and, and the poking and prodding at how cute your baby is and, and showing it off to everyone then come the sleepless nights and the hard work and the nappy changing and and all the rest of it and you also start to have more doubts you're thinking am i am i doing this right uh, am i you know and the pressures of of that situation should never be underestimated because even the most strong-willed person with the the best preparation in the world can be broken down to some extent by uh, not even just by the classic um the classic problems of uh, postpartum de- depression uh but even for fathers just the stress and the expectations and everything else that you're supposed to be balancing in your life both parents come under considerable pressure from parents from society and from themselves to get it right and and getting it right well everyone's got an opinion on how you get it right <laughs> so you've got to try and work out the best way for you, for your family to get it right. And then somehow you've got to compartmentalize all that pressure and make it small enough to cope with, and then sort of find your way through this whole new experience. And it's really, really intimidating. It It is really intimidating. And I think that, you know, when it comes to talking about people who are either anti-vaccination or on the fence or, And really, I think that the vast majority of people who are like in those groups or consider themselves a part of that movement are just scared and confused. And I think that like kind of the final thing that sort of like pushed me back, I suppose, over the fence to being pro-vaccination was just, you know, my understanding like through my research as a student and, you know, like where I'm at in my university studies were all about 
evidence-based practice, evidence-based practice in my field. So taking more research classes and like where we had to look into research methodology and data analytics, and then also breaking down um, logical fallacies and arguments and just talking about why that is and talking about the human inclination to listen to our emotional monkey brain, even when there's an insane amount of data right in front of our eyes that you know um completely discredits that sort of feeling and those fears and so i think that like learning about why your brain is so susceptible to fears even if those fears are very very statistically unlikely to happen is something that can empower parents to make better decisions for their children and um also just speaking to like the experience of women and i would say that most people who are giving birth um identify as women you were kind of constantly pushed out of having our own opinions in the real world and our day-to-day lives and i think that's the other thing that the anti-vaccination movement actually has going for it is the fact that they address medical autonomy and you know the right to be listened to by your providers and the right to have a really well-developed relationship and to have your decisions and your questions listened to and answered respectfully so i think for people who have had medical trauma or who have been in a lot of situations where they weren't listened to can be very inclined to just turn their backs on the entire sort of like medical field and what I would refer to as throwing the baby out with the bathwater and kind of just turning around and giving them the finger and saying, well, you didn't listen to me this time, this time, or this time about any of these things and you were wrong. So now I'm not gonna listen to you about this other thing. And I think that that's sort of um, where the anti-vaccination movement has really picked up and where so many parents fall apart and kind of lose their footing in trying to unravel this really difficult medical decision so that last point you made about medical autonomy and being listened to i think is a critical one because it's something that has come come up a lot of times even outside the context of the vaccination argument because it's an ongoing problem that, for for want of a better word, mainstream medicine is still grappling with. That back in the day, of course, when doctors were less qualified and and there was, you know, and I'm talking sort of 19th century kind of thing, there was a more of a personal connection. There was a local doctor. Your family would use that doctor for, you know, generations, and the doctor would make house calls and that kind of thing. And even though what your doctor could provide wasn't actually that great some of the things that your doctor could provide were really brilliant like the personal touch the bedside manner all all of that kind of thing personally visiting your home showing an interest making a connection with your family then of course ironically as the medical system got better and medical technology got better and doctors became better qualified the system changed so it was more a more impersonal one and to some extent of course that was necessary because the sheer scale of of the population and and the nature of medicine and the way it's changed uh, necessitated a, a different approach. But it has resulted with a lot of people not having, say, a regular doctor that they visit. They just go to the local medical centre and, and speak to whoever's on duty at the time. Uh, doctors don't do house calls anymore and, unless you're willing to pay a pretty pretty reasonable sum for it. The family doctor that your, your family always used to see is, you know, in many places, just sort of a a quaint little idea of of the past. One advantage that the alternative medicine industry has going for it is that their, their service providers are really good at listening. They say, tell me what you feel, tell me what's wrong with you, tell me what your concerns are. And they've got time to do it. The average doctor in a medical center is under a huge amount of pressure to get through a certain amount of patients through the day. And they've, you know, they've got an allocation maybe in their own minds of, of 15 minutes, 20 minutes max kind of thing. Whereas the alternative medical provider has no such constraints. And of course, doesn't have the pressure of an entire set of industry standards hanging over the head as well. 
so they can pretty much do and, and say what they like and they can spend all the time in the world talking to one particular patient and I would too, if I was being paid $500 a pop to, to see someone and say, yes, you need more rose water in your diet or, or whatever, whatever nonsense I'm telling them that month. But there is a real, there, there is a real issue here that the alternative medical industry has actually got right and, and knows how to capitalize on. And I do know that the mainstream medical industry has recognized that and is, is working to address it. It's just that the nature of the system makes it difficult to say, sure, I will sit down and for half an hour with you and talk about what you feel is wrong in your personal life and talk about these issues and how they may or may not be related to your health. The average doctor just does not have the luxury of being able to do that. But there, it is the, it is still true that doctors do need to listen more and involve patients more and at the very least, help patients to understand that they also are playing a role in their health. So it's a joint effort. It's not, I'm the doctor telling you what to do, and now you just have to go home and take these pills and, and don't question me kind of thing. Now, when I last saw my GP to get uh, a repeat prescription for my antidepressants, I actually ha have a really good one. And, and he said, okay, uh, sorry, GP stands for general practitioner, which is what we call our doctors here in Australia. Yeah, I know it's MD for you guys in, in the States. Mm -hmm. So he said to me, how are you going with these, with, with this medication? How long have, have you been on it? Have you, have you had any noticed any changes or, or whatever? How are you feeling these days? Are you on any other medical medication? Let's talk about what that other medication is. How's that going as well? Ulcerative colitis is the one I, I take anti-inflammatories for. And I said, yes, I've been on this one ever since I was diagnosed. He said, yep, this is, this is good. And if it's working for you, you should stay on it because it's a very reliable medication. It's been around for decades. And he wanted to take the time to talk through how I was feeling on this medication, how the other medication was going, whether I'd noticed any changes. And that was something I haven't actually experienced in quite a while from a GP. And that I think makes all the difference. A patient is far more likely to listen to a doctor and absorb what they're saying and act on it when the doctor shows a personal interest and asks questions that aren't strictly medical but still relate to the patient's health. And that's where I think the alternative medicine industry has got a real edge because that's what they are very, very good at. And that is also how anti-vaxxers work because they talk about how you feel. They're very interested in how you feel. And if they can influence the way you feel, they can influence the way you think. And once they've done that, they can move you over to their side. And that I think has, has been greatly underestimated. I would absolutely agree with that. And I would, I think that you made a really good point um, about in seeing your general practitioner that reminded me of here in the States. So you do get that more of listening and thoroughly discussing conversation um, with psychiatrists and psychologists and people who work in the mental health communities. So I would say that's one more standardized area of medicine where you do see practitioners taking that additional investment in their patients and really listening, whereas finding um, just like your general doctor, you, they're not really as inclined to do that sort of like thorough listening and investigating because they're also not specialists. They're general practitioners. So um, they have a lot more patients. And then I would say with OBGYNs, they have a similar thing where they have so many patients. Whereas if you see a midwife, whether you see, you know, like more of a home birth midwife or you see, um, you know, a certified nurse midwife, they tend to take more time to really like work through things with their patients. So I think that once you've had that experience, it's can be sort of difficult to go back to trying to form that sort of relationship with your general doctor, regardless of, you know, how certified they are or how much they really do care. That can be really difficult to see if they sort of have you in and out the door within 15 minutes because they've got to get to the next patient. So that sort of distrust of the medical industry and that sort of relationship has led to that huge, um, 
alternative medicine slash anti-vaccination narrative about um, medicine is not one size fits all and stop treating us like one particular medicine is supposed to suit every single person, which can be a valid point, but context is so, so important surrounding that. And that's where I think people really get lost because on its own, that absolutely makes sense. You know, no two people are going to respond the exact same way to one particular medication every single time. And that even includes vaccines. You know, some people have stronger immune responses than other people. Some people, you know, are more inclined to produce more antibodies, whereas other people produce less. But we know that in general, for this particular issue, that's the best medicine we've got. And same thing applies to a lot of antibiotics and antidepressants is that we know they work in general for most people, but there is nuance there. So it's kind of hard to like weed through that argument and like validate it without agreeing with it. And so I think that that's where people get um, really lost in that community. Yeah, that's a good point you made earlier there, because one of the arguments from anti-vaxxers is, well, vaccines are predicated on the idea that one size fits all. And, you know, how can how come the same medication be equally efficacious for, a, for an infant and, and an adult, which misses the whole point of what vaccines are. Firstly, vaccines aren't actually a medicine. You know, they are literally introducing a, a watered down version of a disease to your body so that your immune system learns how to fight it and, and beat it. So we're not talking about medicine, the normal, we're not talking about any of the normal mechanisms here. This is, this is not, you know, you're not treating something. Um, you are training the immune system. It's a, it's a completely different ball game. It's, it's not even in the, in the same category. So that, that argument doesn't work. And the other thing, the other question, or sorry, the argue, other argument made is, well, just because it's okay for one person doesn't mean it's it's okay for for everyone, which is an argument that people use against regular types of medicine as as well. And yeah, sure, in very rare cases there will be some reasons why a tiny percentage of people aren't able to have a particular vaccine or a particular type of of medication due to allergies or uh, pre-existing medical conditions that would complicate the situation due to a reaction with the medication and that kind of thing. These are known and well-established and extraordinarily rare. So that's, that's not an, an argument. And anti-vaxxers and also uh, alternative medical practitioners to say, like to say, well, it's, it might work for you. That doesn't necessarily mean it, it will work for other people. And they say this about regular medications that we know work very well, like antibiotics. That is quite an absurd argument. Firstly, it's not about whether or not it works for a person. It's not working for a person. It's working on a disease or a medical condition. It's not about whether or not, we're not talking about personal preferences here. It's not whether about, you know, we're not talking about broccoli and potatoes. Oh, broccoli might work for you. Potatoes might work for you. Yeah, I don't, I don't like them, but you know, that might be good for you. We're not talking about this. It's not about whether or not they're right for you as a person. It's about whether or not they interact properly with your medical condition. Bacteria doesn't care about whether or not you think it'll work for you as a person, you know, um, and, and neither do antibiotics. All antibiotics care about is tackling the bacteria. Antibiotics don't stop to ask if they will work for you as a person. They don't care and they are, they are working on the bacteria. They're not working on a person. You don't have a relationship with your, with your antibiotics. So I, I think it's a very bizarre way of looking at it, but it's the kind of language that's come over from the alternative medical industry because, of course, for them, it's all about the feels rather than the reels. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that um, the other side of that too is that you also see a lot just sort of the arguments that... Um, you know, everything that happens to you medically is health-based and is based on choices that you make about your own health, which I think is another place that a lot of people get lost, especially here in the States, because, you know, obviously it's no secret that America has a huge problem with, you know, just general health-oriented diseases because people here have such poor diet and poor, do make poor lifestyle choices. And, you know, there's so many people who are in 
that community who, you know, are pointing to that and saying like, okay, well, here's the real reason that you have, you know, these chronic diseases and that your body is susceptible to disease, which is true about things like heart disease and diabetes and other issues that we know to be linked for sure to diet. And of, of course, it's important to you know, eat healthy whole foods and to exercise and things like that. But that doesn't mean that your body is magically going to become immune to all like viruses and bacteria because, you know, unfortunately, we're all walking around the earth in these very vulnerable meat suits that we have been given. And while we have come, you know, a long way in terms of our development and in medical science, that doesn't mean that evolutionarily our bodies by default have caught up to you know the stressors that our environments it just means that our medical technology has really gotten much better and so I think that you know people just get this idea that they're like oh well you know you don't need to immunize for x y or z because you can actually just solve that with taking vitamins that's an argument that I heard so often and that is like really put out there so much that I would actually like to see more people who are on like the pro vaccination side actively talking about the fact that there are so many people within the anti vaccination movement or who are on the fence who think, oh, you can actually make yourself immune to these diseases by just having adequate vitamins A, B, C, and D. That is seriously an argument that I have heard. I cannot even tell you how many times. And they have all of these like very, um, insidiously cherry-picked studies to like make those points and while they are you know maybe tangentially related to the pathology of the disease and that people who have deficiency in those vitamins may be more susceptible than others it doesn't mean that if you have an adequate amount of that particular vitamin in your body on any given day that you are not going to contract the disease if you come into contact with it so it's really hard to like talk about the movement without breaking down every single one of these like very selectively cherry picked arguments because that's really how it operates is that sort of like once you debunk one thing they really do that goalpost shifting where like they will just kind of move to another thing and be like well what about this let me show you this study and well what about this let me show you this study and like i do not have enough time in my day to go through the methodology and the reports on every single one of those studies and take that study to an expert and say can you explain this to me or why are they like wrong or correct about the way that this operates in the body and it's so hard as a parent to wade through all of that especially um when you're a person who like is looking at the research and so I guess that's why it was so hard for me to make the decision and why I was like so anxious for so long as I was like, okay, you know, going into it, I was like, I'll research this, but really I'm an evidence-based person. Like for me, I was like, I want to look at the studies and they did technically have studies. And some of those studies are studies that come from credible journals, but like you don't have enough time. Nobody does to go through and nitpick all of the details of those studies. And they don't talk about how they are so overshadowed by like thousands and thousands and thousands of more studies that kind of debunk the things that they're trying to prove or that they're cherry picking really small pieces of data just to make their own point. So it's hard. <laughs> yeah, you've raised some really good examples there. The, the vitamins one is one that, that's uh, been brought up many, many times, as you say, it's one I have encountered before. And my response to it is to ask a couple of simple questions. Okay, which vitamins should I take to grant me immunity to tetanus and rabies? Now, <laughs> I've got I, no I'm, idea. I've, I've, got <laughs> no, I've, I've never received uh, a coherent answer to that because of course there isn't one. Tetanus and rabies, there is no way to get natural immunity for those diseases. That's why we have vaccines for them. There is no way to get natural immunity to them. If you, if you get them, you will die without a substantial amount of medical intervention. And even with medical intervention, there's still a pretty good chance you will die anyway, especially rabies. So vaccines are the only way of preventing those diseases, diseases from taking hold in your body. Vitamins won't do it. Healthy diet, exercise, none of that. You could have, 
you know, the, the fittest bodybuilder on, on the planet. He captures tetanus. He's almost guaranteed dead or, or at least severely damaged unless he's had a vaccine. And certainly with rabies, you know, he needs to start running a wheel pretty much straight away because rabies doesn't take any prisoners. So it, it's just a nonsense to say, you know, vitamins, this and healthy diet, that and, and blah, blah, blah. There are plenty of people in the past who've had healthy diets and lots of vitamins and still died of a vaccine preventable disease because the disease simply didn't care about how clean living they were. That's, that's really not the issue. Diseases act in ways that are completely unrelated to diet and exercise and, and this kind of thing. So it's, it, it's, it's just not about that. It's largely about how well they can overcome your immune system and continue to do what they've been genetically programmed to do in, inside your body. The other issue that you, you brought up is, is the one of, of studies. And yeah, you're right. They can, anti-vaxxers can produce lists of studies that seem to support their case. And every now and then they'll hit the jackpot and find one that's been published in a reasonably decent journal. But as you say, the ones that are published in recently uh, decent journals generally don't say what they claim that they are saying, or they do say it, but with many qualifications and very carefully qualified at that to say, well, you know, this should not be, read as a conclusive statement that such and such or more research is needed in this field or you know we were unable to draw um concrete conclusions from the data blah 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 they will always copy paste only the bit that that they think will support their argument and they carefully ignore the rest and then finally as you, as you say there is the preponderance of evidence from other studies that overwhelmingly supports the pro-vax position this is where people tend to get a bit confused about what scientific consensus actually reflects because people like to say, oh, well, science is not a, a, a democracy. It's not determined by, you know, the number of people who agree on, 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 such an, on an issue and that kind of thing. It's just, you know, it's not a case of if you've got more people who agree with you, then that must be true. And that is correct. But that's not what a scientific consensus is about. Scientific consensus is a consensus of evidence, not merely a consensus of opinions. Scientific consensus is what's arrived at when the evidence keeps coming up again and again the same way. And that's what the consensus is based on. It's not just, oh, well, these scientists have such and such an opinion and these scientists have a different opinion. But because there are more scientists with this opinion, that opinion must be correct. It's nonsense. These guys have that opinion and there's more of them because that opinion is based on the evidence and the evidence overwhelmingly supports that opinion. That's the reason for the opinion. It's, it's whereas people sort of try to argue it the other way around. And that's completely untrue. So when people say, you know, dead, try to deluge you with studies. Firstly, you have to say, okay, pick the best study. Pick out of all the studies you're throwing at me, pick the best study, the one you think that best represents your case. And then explain to me why you think that is the best study. Then explain to me why I should accept that single study over the huge amount of studies that completely refute that study and and demonstrate why it's wrong. And you can you can do that without even having to investigate, you know, who the author was, whether or not they've got some conflict of interest, whether or not they're anti-vaxxers sneaking a study in by um, some nefarious means into a, an otherwise respectable journal, and whether or not their funding came from an anti-vax group and this kind of thing. And when also it comes to general arguments about about uh, vaccination, whether or not a vaccine works properly or, or whether a vaccine is supposed to be causing some kind of terrible problem with, with a child. Because as you say, it can get very detailed and, and most of us don't have time to wade through all, all those details. What I tend to do is focus on the principles behind the argument. And one of the light ways I like to do this to say, what is the mechanism? Explain to me the mechanism that, it, that you are proposing by which this vaccine allegedly causes this problem in a child. What is the, the mechanism? Identify the mechanism and then show me some studies that, that demonstrate this. 
I'm not interested in, in going into the details. We don't need to go into the details yet. What we need to do is look at the underlying principle of, of your argument. And we can start by looking at the mechanism. So I like to look at the big picture first, because there's no point in looking at the smaller picture unless the big picture is, is credible. And I find that makes it a lot easier to sort of sort out the wheat from the chaff and, and determine whether or not someone is really serious about discussing the issue. Yeah, and I think the the thing that is the most difficult truly about trying to, you know, have a good communication with somebody who's, you know, like on the anti-vaccination side or who even maybe is on the fence is that they're shoveled and shoveled and shoveled this idea that, oh, you can't trust any of their studies because they're all funded by Big Pharma and that's the, really the argument that you hear over and over again. And it's hard to have a conversation with them because you're like, okay, yes, there are some people in pharmaceutical companies that have done shady things. Like I'm not gonna sit here and say carte blanche, you should trust everything that ever comes from a pharmaceutical company because they always have your best interests at heart because that's just simply not true. And they're correct about that. But <laughs> that doesn't negate, you know, all of the data and the government funded studies and studies that have been funded by other sources that still contradict their claims. But when you try to show people, you're like, okay, well, we've got all of this great data that, you know, sort of disproves this thing that you're really worried about. You're just going to keep getting hit with, no, like, that's not credible because they're big pharma or they're funded by so-and-so or they have political ties to this person, except for when it works in their favor, which is another thing I found very interesting because there are people on the anti-vax side who will cherry pick things that are from like the CDC or the World Health Organization or similar organizations and they'll go to like one particular small part of one study that was put out by them and be like see see like you know they're admitting it they're wrong but only in this one small way that they slipped up and i'm like don't you think if there was like this big like sneaky scheme where they were conspiring against you that they wouldn't be so foolish as to like include this one part of their study that quote unquote supports your argument but you know, I digress. And I think that that's the really difficult thing to get through is there's so many people on that side of the aisle who haven't researched it enough to realize that pharmaceutical companies actually largely don't make money on vaccines or they make very little money or in a lot of cases, they even lose money on producing them. Um, and I think that if you could actually get through to people on that point alone, like if you can poke a hole in that part of the argument, I think that you really kind of like will send somebody spiraling to eventually kind of like uncover all the other ways they've been lied to, um, which is like a really important thing that I think a lot of people overlook. Let's get back to your personal story then. Um, anecdotes, as you've mentioned earlier, are a very strong part of the anti-vax narrative. Uh, and it's, it's funny, of course, because um, they only like the anecdotes that favor their position. They, they will discredit or dismiss any anecdotes that don't, that don't suit them. So for example, the fact that you were vaccinated and you have absolutely no problems. And the irony of course also is that most anti-vaxxers themselves were vaccinated and they had no problems, but suddenly they want to argue that any child who's getting vaccinated now is going to have a problem. And, and, you know, th this is the bizarre thing. How, in your experience, did anti-vaxxers address that issue or did they just tend to sideline it completely? Well, just to like be completely frank, like so the person that I'm very close with and we were discussing it, you know, which is like kind of a hard thing to address now, especially because me looking back on it, I'm like, wow, that's like super ableist and messed up. But I have, um, you know, like mental health stuff that I've been dealing with for most of my life, like throughout my adulthood, I would say my like late teens to early adulthood, but it was things that were presenting in childhood a long time ago. Um, I'm diagnosed with, you know, bipolar with ADHD. Um, I've been like diagnosed with depression and anxiety and like you know, a lot of mental health issues. And then those sort of just got um, stuck in that like 
bucket of all of these problems that they attribute to that. And then so they were kind of like, oh, well, like, maybe you wouldn't have these problems if, you know, you hadn't had these as a child, which, you know, of course, is like a really hard thing to hear, like, not only as a new parent, and somebody who's struggling with like, you know, antenatal and postpartum depression and anxiety, but also somebody who's had a really, really difficult struggle throughout my entire adulthood with, you know, um, mental health. And that has by far been the most difficult thing that I've sort of had to overcome in my life and like to get to a point where I can be a happy person and then kind of like getting stuck with this like well it's kind of like your fault but not really your fault but more your parents fault but it's because they were like misguided because they had been you know had by this large industry or quote unquote like medical industrial complex um which is you know just another form of ableism and i think that people only really have that conversation when it comes to uh, the claims about vaccines and autism, but they don't have as much of that conversation when it comes to all of these other medical problems that people on that side of the fence are also blaming on vaccines, which is really damaging in, in the long term because it just kind of like leads you to believe that all of these things are either your fault or your parents' fault and that they can't be solved with, um, you know, like evidence-based methods like different kinds of therapies and mental health help and actually after I had my son I stayed off of like my mental health medications for like a lot longer than I needed to just because of like the pregnancy and the breastfeeding but like longer than I needed to because I was like no I'm gonna try again to like manage my symptoms holistically and to be honest like I just got to a point where I was like, that isn't working for me anymore. <laughs> like, not only was that not working for me, and I came to that realization, but then, you know, we had the pandemic hit. And this is really where, like, the whole thing unraveled was I start seeing all of these people who are, um, you know, against vaccines or on the fence or wherever. Um, and, you know, mind you, I'm in the United States, obviously. So, like, politically, this has been an extremely contentious year. And we have these insane people and they're coming out of the woodworks with these crazy theories and they're like not wearing masks. They're refusing to wear a mask, saying all this crazy stuff about how this is part of the, the new world order. And you've got all the QAnon conspiracy theorists. And like, I'm realizing that all of the people in these groups who like are you know questioning vaccines or the vast majority of them are like on board with this insane rhetoric and think that donald trump is a savior and i am just so far left like more left than joe biden is so i'm looking at these people and i'm like what the hell is going on like you guys are insane and then when you start like being like okay if they can logically like believe all of these things like their logic allows that to be a real thing in their minds like you really need to take a deeper look at like any of the other claims that they're making and start unwinding those and then I was just kind of like all right so I've been had but not in the way they're implying I've been had I've in fact been had by them and then just kind of like walking through but like even with that realization it took me like quite a while of like you know re-researching and re-researching and re-researching to feel comfortable and confident like going forward um with like you know crossing all the way back over to the i guess pro-vaccination side of the fence and even then like even once i felt fully informed and like fully confident that i was making the right choice that first appointment was still terrifying. Like I sobbed. I, when I tell you I sobbed, I was terrified. I was shaking in my boots, even though I was like, I went in and, you know, I talked to my son's doctor and I was like, listen, like, I trust you. Like, I, I know that you're right. Logically, I know that you're right. But I was like, I just need you to sit with me right now in this moment and like acknowledge that my monkey brain is screaming at me that like, I'm about to kill my child. So if we could just kind of work through that and you know of course she was so great about it she was so wonderful and non-judgmental and kind and empathetic and really like all of the things that 
you know, she probably would have been in the first place if I'd even given her a chance and wasn't so like wrapped up in this narrative of fear. But I was so scared to even have a conversation with her before that day about it, like in depth, other than me just saying like, no, sorry, not today, that I couldn't get to that point, which is so sad because, you know, it only put me at risk, only put him at risk, only put other people at risk. So. Yeah, that's that's a good point you've made there about giving your doctor a chance. We talked earlier about doctors really needing to give their patients a chance to get to get some feelings off their chest and maybe to connect with them a bit, a bit more and make make sure that that they uh, feel and and recognise that they are being listened to and heard and appreciated and and that they are being involved in the discussion and the decisions around their healthcare. But yes, the, the doctors need to be given a chance as well. They need to be sort of you know um, treated like human beings rather than you know th these horrible people in in suits with confusing certificates on the wall and and arcane qualifications that most of us don't understand who sort of dispense medication and then tell us to go away kind of thing. That's a very old but endearing, uh, sorry, enduring stereotype that's, that's taking a long time to, to shake. And I think the idea of giving your doctor a chance is a really great one. It's a great way to put it as well, because it sort of rehumanizes these, these people and, and sort of reminds us, hey, you know, uh, making you better is in their best interests. Making you sicker is not. They they really do have all the best reasons and and all the best will in the world to make sure that you are okay and that you get better. I want to go to um, the pro and and anti-vax side of things. Can you give me the anti-vax argument that you found most compelling? at the time and then the provax argument that you found most compelling as you started to move on in your views that one is really hard because i think that it's such like there's so many different really small pieces of it and then you're kind of just like pushed with these like really strong narratives that are like kind of reinforcing what people are saying on the anti-vax side and then also an extreme amount of data on um, the Provax side, but I would say kind of what I mentioned earlier that the most important thing to me, and I mean, this might not honestly apply to everybody who's on the fence, but the most important thing to me was once I had debunked the fact that like pharmaceutical companies were making this insane profit off of, you know, off of um, these vaccines, like you then that re, I guess, like reaffirms that you should be giving credibility to studies even if they are funded by those companies because they really don't stand to gain much by swaying the data in either direction especially when you consider the risk of what would happen um, to such a company if they were found to have falsified data or any of those other things you know their entire reputation would essentially be destroyed and their entire company would likely go down and i don't think that um the academic community would be shy at all about taking down a company that was found to have falsified data because, you know, at the end of the day, um, I don't think that scientists go into science because they're trying to make a bunch of money. And I think when you come to that realization, you're like, all right, well, you know, we should really be looking at this. So then when I kind of came to that realization and then also you know um i think joining some other groups online as well and like where other people who have expertise in certain fields related to um like virology and immunology would really break down particular studies or particular claims was kind of like what really shifted me back over the fence because like here are these people you know who stand to gain literally nothing are just donating their time to have a conversation with somebody and be like, hey, I see that you're confused by this study or you're confused about this particular piece of information. And I want to take a look at the study with you and like really break it down and explain to you like on a chemical, on a molecular level, what is happening in this research. And I think that, you know, I cannot applaud those people enough, truly, like the experts who are online dedicating their time to just help confused parents work through questions because once I like went into you know um some of the larger groups where you have 
people who require like um, well-sourced, like evidence-based claims in their groups and then also, you know, require people to back up everything they say with data. And I went and searched through those. There was a response for every single question or fear that I've ever had already in the group. Like that's just using the search tool, not asking my own questions. So anyway, <laughs> to get back to your question. So I think that the, the pharmaceutical funding was probably a big one for me. And then um, that sort of just puts the ball back in the court of the data because it's like, all right, well now we're just gonna see who has the best data. Um, because the funding wasn't necessarily an issue. And so I really began to look at that. And then I think that I looked through the list of somebody had, I think it was the like 200 studies or something, all debunking um, the MMR and autism claims. And then I also read a few Mama. other studies that Mama. were debunking um, the autoimmune Mama. condition claims. That, sorry. <laughs> so once I kind of had looked through those studies, I felt a lot more confident. And another really big one was, I think, um, the issue of aluminum versus aluminum salts being in vaccines. So like, that's the big one that you hear is people are so concerned about aluminum and they have all, again, all of this really like selective, somewhat cherry picked, somewhat valid, somewhat um, not valid data about aluminum being, you know, um, really likely to cause inflammation in the brain and like then I kind of like looked at it and people were like well no it, it's actually not aluminum it's aluminum salts and they operate completely differently in the body so like just you know to start there that's just wrong like <laughs> it's literally wrong and then I think the final thing that really convinced me too was um the inserts and I know that you've heard this one before because obviously like all the people who are on sort of like the anti-vax side or on the fence or like, oh, but the inserts, the inserts, the inserts. And when you just read them as somebody who has no knowledge of what they're supposed to be for, but like just kind of reading them as they are, you're like, holy shit, this is terrifying. Like what are you, what are they putting in these people who are like dying, developing all sorts of weird side effects, you know, growing a third arm. I don't even know. People have all of these crazy problems and you're reading it and you're just like, it's just like a fear bomb. And I mean, now I look back on it and I laugh because I'm like, okay, well, if I had read the back of, you know, a bottle of Tylenol, I probably would have you know experience the same thing but when you're looking at it and you're thinking of it as something that's going to be like intramuscularly injected into the body of a really tiny baby you're like this is terrifying and then I researched it a little bit more and people were like yeah they actually have to put anything that happens to anybody at any point in the trial on the back of that regardless of whether it's affiliated with the actual drug or not like you could get in a car accident and die and they would have to put that on the back of it so I think that one was really the kicker yeah, that's that's such a good point I know some people some pro-vax advocates have done a really good job of digging up lists of uh, issues that have been reported during a, a vaccine trial and, and um, showing just how, how ridiculous it is to conclude that any of these were sort of vaccine related, like numbness in left buttock and this, this kind of thing. Um, and think, oh, oh no, <laughs> inclusion, numb buttock. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, you know, they've got to mention it because it happened and that's, that's it, you know? So yeah, once you start adding them up and looking at them very carefully, it does start to sound a little ridiculous that these can all be put down to the vaccine. Um, so yeah, it, it, I think contextualizing the information is, is a big part of, of learning why it's there and, and why it doesn't actually mean what you, it might appear to mean. And of course, that's um, that's the critical point. Superficial reading is is all the anti-vaxxers want people to do because superficial reading is quick and easy and allows you to arrive rapidly at conclusions. And then you think that's it. Once you've got your conclusion, you're happy with it. But it does require a little bit of extra work to actually contextualize the information, dig a bit deeper, find out why that information is there and what it really means within the broader context of what the insert is telling you. The other funny thing, of course, is that if this, there was some kind of terrible 
plot by Big Pharma to make everyone sick. Why would they put all this information on their vaccine inserts for crying out loud? They're being as transparent as possible here. It's <laughs> to the point that it's actually working against them because people are drawing the wrong conclusions. So that doesn't actually work very well for the for the anti-vax conspiracy theory when you when you think about it. Yeah, and I mean, I really think that's what it all is. It's really just one giant conspiracy, but they managed to entangle all of these parents who are genuinely just confused and afraid and trying to make a good decision. So, you know, I'm hoping that somebody listens to this out there and there's somebody who has like kind of a similar story to mine is going to be like, oh, you know what, maybe she's kind of right about some of these things. Like maybe, hey, I noticed that too. That is actually a little weird now that you mention it um, because it can be really hard once you're like entrenched in it. And like I said, even once I had felt confident in my decision that I was like, you know what, these people are wrong. They, they're safe and they work. Like on a logical level, I was confident. Like the emotional fear I almost feel like I'll never escape and it's like sucks to say, but that's now something that I have to work through in therapy on a regular basis to overcome that anxiety because it's crippling to someone's mental health to have these narratives. And even after having like left all of those insane groups and like really removed myself from that narrative, I feel like I still have just these little like phrases that they use always like lurking in the back of my head you know like I think the the first time and even since then like when I take him to you know like have his shots or even me when I went and like got my flu shot um I have this thing in my mind about like oh you know I watched my child change overnight like before my very eyes and um or you know even like me as an adult they'll be like oh I woke up the next day and I had this crippling injury or like a week later I had this problem show up and I feel like I have this little monster now and that's really what anxiety is it's just a little monster that lives in your brain and tells you things that aren't true um because we just have these weird human brains that like to sabotage us um which I actually was doing some research and there's a very interesting like evolutionary reason for why that is and why we are so predisposed to that sort of anxiety and they were talking about it in context of um, the anti-vaccination movement so I think that I have a lot of empathy for people you know who still sit on that side of the fence or who are on the fence because I genuinely believe that they are all for the most part suffering extremely from anxiety and that's a horrible problem to have. So to wrap up then, what are three pieces of advice you would give to someone who is vaccine hesitant, whether they're a parent or a prospective parent or have never been a parent at all? Um, I think probably the first thing that I would do is I would ask them, I would say, hey, specifically, is there something in particular that you're feeling hesitant about? Because if it's just one or two questions about one or two specific things that they saw and they haven't been like in those you know fear groups and like fully enveloped in all of those you know um shifted goalpost arguments it's a little bit easier to address so i would just say okay like um you know let's take a look at some of those claims because i used to be afraid of that too and here let me show you some other things that actually um, kind of debunk those fears that you feel more comfortable. I think the other thing that I would say is um, I would probably tell them to find a doctor that they feel really comfortable with. I would say, hey, why don't you go ahead and, you know, interview some pediatricians or interview some general practitioners and kind of take your time to find a doctor that you feel really comfortable with, that you feel has a good bedside manner, that has a good rapport with, and that you personally trust and that you feel like this person has my best interests at heart and have that conversation with them. Cause at the end of the day, they're going to give you a much better answer than I can. Third piece of advice, I would say, I would probably honestly ask them some general questions about like, if 
they've been having like a lot of you know anxiety around this decision and other parenting decisions because i can't stress enough that i think that so common this is really a symptom of postpartum anxiety and like antenatal anxiety in mothers and especially in the united states our healthcare system is so messed up that it's really hard for people to kind of get those issues treated and i would probably say hey you know um i had the same anxiety that you had as a new parent and i had all of these same fears and i don't want you to be as held back by your fears for as long as i was by mine so let's get you some help let's get you some help and get you in to see a practitioner who can help you work through that 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 is really great advice and it's a, a great point to end on thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences i've really enjoyed our talk and it was uh, terrific to hear from just a, a regular parent with genuine experiences who's been through this sort of stuff and has been happy to talk about them from a, a personal perspective thank you so much for joining me today you're welcome <laughs>